But no, it's really good to see everybody this morning. You look so wonderful this morning. We're going to go ahead and, uh, and jump right into the Word there. I have, I have some notes in, in your bulletin, but I actually don't have uh, the traditional notes that we give where you fill in the blank. I've just allowed you to um, fill in your own notes, make your own points through this one. I just want to take you verse by verse through a very familiar uh, parable. It's called the parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus speaks about. It's in Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 25. So as we begin, I just want to read about 12 verses from there, and then we'll get started. Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 25. It says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Let's pray together if you would. Father, we, just, we thank you for your word. Because we believe that in your word we have life, God. And so I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would bring life to your word. And God, that you would use it this morning to, to speak to our hearts, each of us, where we're at, God. I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would reveal Jesus to us in a fresh way this morning. God, every time we come to your word, Lord, we not only want encouragement, God, but we want correction. And Lord, we want to come into alignment with your will for our lives. And we trust that you're going to do that this morning in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So most people are pretty familiar with the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And, and, you know, in this parable, as I was reading it this week and I was meditating on it, I started meditating along these lines, and I noticed how often they used the word neighbor. And I don't know about you, but when I think about a good neighbor, and as I was thinking about this parable throughout the week, I ended up, my mind just went to Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Anybody familiar with Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? So listen, I ended up doing research on Mr. Rogers and everything. It was kind of weird. You know what I'm talking about? Because when I remember being a little kid watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, and I remember thinking, man, this dude is kind of weird. But at the same time, Mr. Rogers was the real deal. I mean, he would sit down and talk to kids about some serious issues like divorce and assassination and war and different things because he knew kids were afraid and he just he thought that kids needed to be respected and needed to be dealt with in a, in a much more respectful kind of a way. And so I was sitting there thinking about this, and I'm thinking about neighbor, and I thought, man, you talk about a real neighbor. That Mr. Rogers is a real neighbor. 
He knows what it means to be a neighbor. Matter of fact, he sang a song all about being a neighbor. And you talk about a collection of cardigans, man. That guy had the finest collection of cardigans that you've ever seen in your life. And it, but here's what I found out in my research of him is that his, his mother actually knit all of those cardigans. Can you believe that? Amen, yeah. <laughs> this is an awesome start to a message, isn't it, Donald? I was talking about this to Donald this morning. He's like, where are you going with this, man? Uh, so, so the thing about Mr. Rogers was is he was talking about, you know, the neighborhood. And it turns out that... Mr. Rogers was an ordained minister. He was ordained, and when he was ordained, they knew that he had such a calling on his life to minister to children that when they ordained him, they did not ordain him to preach the gospel. They ordained him to go into children's television when, it, when, he, when he went from school. And he goes into children's television. And here's what he said in an interview that I was listening to. He, he said, listen, love is at the root of everything. Love is at the root of all learning and all relationships. Everything in our life is centered down and centered around love or the lack of it. He said those two things. And then, of course, he went on to say, he talks about because the song, y'all know the song, he would come in the door, man, he'd be the jolliest dude in the world. And he wasn't faking, that was the real him. And he would open the door and he would come in and he would say, you know, he'd start to sing that song. Anybody know it? It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. You sing it with me, a beautiful day for a neighbor. And he'd say, would you be mine? Could you be mine? And then he ends up saying, won't you be my neighbor? And, and they asked him, what does that mean, won't you be my neighbor? And that's the title of my message, won't you be my neighbor? He says, what does that mean? And he says, well, I think it's an invitation for somebody to draw close to you. Because he says, the greatest thing we can do in life is to let somebody know that they are loved and that they are capable of loving. That's what he said. I thought, man, this is profound, Lord. I'm sitting here thinking about what a neighbor is, and Mr. Rogers reveals to us what a neighbor is above all. But see, even beyond that, even beyond Mr. Rogers, the greatest neighbor in, in the sense of the term that we're speaking about, because the Scripture says that, that the law is, is boiled down to these two points. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And there's an issue in this parable with who is actually a neighbor. Now, when we read this parable, we like to think, every time we read the Bible, we love to think that the center of the story is actually us. And we do it all the time. We misinterpret so much Scripture because we think the person at the center is always us, that we're to be the Good Samaritan. But I want to tell you, when you're reading Scripture, everything you should read should ultimately point you to Jesus. Matter of fact, that's what the Bible does infallibly. The Bible may not teach you about DNA or molecular structure. It may not be the greatest scientific book you've ever read in your life. But what it does perfectly and infallibly every time is point you directly to Jesus, who is the creator of DNA. Amen? So when we go to the Scripture, even when we read these parables, Jesus is trying to point to something much deeper. And He's not just simply trying to tell us to be a good neighbor, but He's pointing to something specifically about who He is and His nature and what He's about. And so when we get into this, what I'm going to say and what I'm going to try to point out is that the Good Samaritan is really about Jesus. It's really not so much about you and I, it's more about Him. But let's, let's look into it and see what it says here. Because in, in, in the very first verses, 25, 26, it says, A Jewish lawyer comes to him and tests him. Now, it's not a lawyer like in the sense that we know about lawyers. This was just a man who practiced the law, who understood the law, who interpreted the law of the Old Testament. And there were some over 600 and some laws in the Old Testament that under the Old Covenant, they were supposed to keep. And he comes to Jesus, he says, Look, Jesus... What must I do to inherit eternal life? 
And he's testing him. He's saying, look, what can I do in order to earn, to merit, and to deserve salvation and to merit eternal life? And so Jesus responds to him. He says, well, what's your reading of the lawyer there, lawyer? What's your interpretation of it? How do you read it? And he says, well, you know, I read it like this, Jesus. It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, yeah, that's it. Great reading, good interpretation. Go and do that, and you'll have life, and you'll live forever. And you won't need a Savior because you will save yourself if you are able to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I don't know about you, but see, I believe that Jesus is actually using one of his classic tactics that he uses. Because I don't think Jesus is saying, look, yeah, you need to go out and try harder. You need to go out and continue to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And then you'll save yourself. If we know anything about Jesus, we know that we cannot save ourselves, that he came to save us. So what is he getting at? I think he's doing what he does all the time, and that is to bring man to the end of himself. And see, so he tells, the, he tells the guy, he says, yeah, just go out and do that. You'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Well, immediately, that coming from Jesus, just like you and I do, when somebody gives us a law, it immediately exposes our heart. And you think, oh, well, you know, there was that time that my neighbor was in a little bit of need, and I didn't kind of help him out that time. And all of these things begin to come up in your heart. You ever think about that? I mean, when I hear that, you need to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, how many people do you actually love as yourself? That's a good question, right? And then so he's, he's sitting there thinking about these things, and he does exactly what we do. It says, and this man, this lawyer, seeking to justify himself. That's what it says in verse 29. He says, I wanted to justify myself. So he says to, him, he says to Jesus, hey, Jesus, who is my neighbor? I mean, you know, I, I believe that we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves, but let's, let's, let's get it a little bit more understood. Who is my neighbor? Because, like, who really deserves my love? Who really deserves my care and my compassion? Who is my neighbor? Now, now, how many, how often, all of us are very good at this, we are all very good at learning to justify ourselves in all sorts of different things, aren't we? I mean, we can justify ourselves with our bad attitudes. We can say, well, you know what? I'm just upset because he, this dude's a jerk. You know, what am I going to do about it? I mean, I don't usually have a bad attitude like this. But this guy gets on my nerves. We can justify sinful behavior and say, well, you know, I just really love the person. Or we can justify all kinds. It's just a little bit. I'm not really hurting anybody. And we learn to justify all sorts of things. And this man is actually trying to justify reasons for not loving people the way God loves them. That's messed up. But I bet you and I, we both do it all the time in little subtle ways that oftentimes we don't realize. And so Jesus is speaking to him. He's looking to justify himself and stand in his own self-righteousness. And Jesus begins to tell this very provocative story, especially to Jewish people, because it's got all kinds of good stuff in it. It's got racism in it. It's got prejudice in it. It's got all kinds of crazy stuff in it. I love Jesus, though, because like, if you, if you come up to Jesus and ask him a question, just imagine this. You come up to Jesus and ask him a question, he'll just bust out in a parable on you. He don't even have to prepare He'll just bust out in a parable that has all this deep meaning to try to get at our hearts. And he begins to do that. And at the end, what, here's what Jesus comes to. Jesus tells this story about the Good Samaritan. And at the end, he says, he answers this man's question with a question. The man asks, who is my neighbor? And Jesus answers his question by saying, who proved to be a neighbor? 
What he's telling this man is, it's not about who you can find that's good enough to deserve your care and your compassion. It's about you choosing to be a neighbor to whoever comes across your path, whenever they come across your path, regardless of what is going on in their life. It's not about who do you find that is deserving as if anybody is deserving. It's about you choosing to be a neighbor at all times. And Jesus begins to answer it. And see, the lawyer's saying, I can't find a neighbor. And Jesus is saying, you just need to be a neighbor you just need to learn how to be a neighbor and Jesus goes and pushes a little bit a little bit deeper here because because we we have to understand that for this Jewish man this lawyer he had some serious hang-ups and let me tell you something else in our own day and age it's 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 almost like church-going people are what you would consider the modern-day lawyers anybody amen me on that one we're the modern-day lawyers we hold on to all of these rules and different things that we, we place these standards on people and we say, if these people will maintain these standards that I put upon them, then they will be deserving of our care and our compassion and our love. And sometimes then maybe even we will restrict the gospel from certain people. It's like we'll preach the gospel to them because they're pretty good people. But these people over here, they're not so good. I don't know if Jesus really came to save them or not. And here's the thing. None of us deep down in our hearts would say, I I disagree with you, Clay. We don't feel that way. I know people that feel that way. That when you really get down to it, there are people who when they look at people, they stand outside with judgment and they say, no, this person's really not deserving of my love. They're really not deserving of my care and compassion. And for this lawyer, it was so difficult because he grew up in church like so many of us do. And he grew up trained by the law and trained by the leaders of the church and trained by the religious people. And he had such a worldview that when Jesus even mentioned a Samaritan, he would have just kind of turned over in his stomach a little bit. Because all Jewish people saw Samaritans as half-breeds. They wouldn't eat with them. They wouldn't drink with them. They wouldn't sit down to have a conversation with them at a table. They had no interaction with them whatsoever. As far as Jews were concerned, Samaritans were the scum of the earth, and they didn't want to touch them with a 10-foot pole. Back in the day in 1 Kings, you find that the the kingdom, Israel was split into a northern and a southern kingdom, and Samaria became the capital of the northern kingdom at one point. And when Assyria came in to destroy them, guess what they did? They just made an allegiance with them and ended up intermarrying with Assyrians. And so there was this, that's why they called them half-breeds. And then later on, these Samaritans, they would say, well, you know what? We only believe the first five books of the Bible, and we are the only ones who have the original copy, so you Jews don't even have the real stuff. And then there was all this theological debate going in on among them. Sometimes I think in the church, we're, we're more focused on debating theological matters than we are actually loving people. And this is what the lawyer got caught up in. He would debate a theological argument with you all day. Hey, Jesus, let me ask you this question. But he was not interested in loving the people that were directly around him. And see, we end up getting ourselves in the same set of circumstances oftentimes, and we get the same worldview that this man had. And at the end of the parable, it's amazing because he can't even say the word Samaritan. Jesus said specifically it was the Samaritan who reached out to help the man that was wounded, didn't he? But when Jesus said, hey, which one, which one ended up being a neighbor? Which one ended up being a neighbor? He said, I guess the one who showed mercy. He wouldn't even call him a Samaritan. Because in his mind, he, didn't even, he could not bear to say that it was the Samaritan that did this. Now, I love how Jesus will really just tell a parable to get to the issues of your heart 
and disregard really where you're at because he just wants to get right down to the issues of your heart. And when I think about this parable, you know, every time we, when we first read it, we always assume that Jesus is trying to tell us to be the Good Samaritan. And I believe that's absolutely true. But I believe there's something far deeper because how often have you found yourself actually being the Good Samaritan? When you read this story about what this man actually does, I believe there's only really one person that's actually that good. I believe that the Good Samaritan is about Jesus. I believe the Good Samaritan is a picture of Jesus, and I believe this parable is about Jesus, and I believe that's what he's trying to reveal. So when Jesus starts to tell this story, he says, let me tell it like this to you here. Let me, let me give you an understanding of what a real neighbor is and what somebody who loves their neighbors is like. And he says, let me tell you this story. And in verse 30, he says, there was a man who was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. And Jerusalem was the center of worship. It meant contentment. It meant worship. And literally, Jerusalem meant double peace. And so it it typifies this place in God where we are at peace because we have a relationship with God. And nothing else is competing in our lives for what takes center, center place in our lives. And we're worshiping God and we're in contentment and we're in perfect peace. But see, Jericho, on the other hand, it symbolizes and it literally meant a fragrant, fragrant place. And in Jesus' days, this was where all of the trade took place, where things were sold and bought. They had honey, they had balsam, they had cypress. They had all these nice things that they could go to. And this traveler is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, the Scripture says that we are all travelers in this life. We're all sojourners. We're pilgrims, the Bible says. And we're traveling. And personally, I believe just like this man was, every single one of us, what you'll find is on our journey traveling, we will often move from the place of peace, contentment, and worship of God to the place where we can get some more stuff. Where we're just moving and traveling. We're going from Jerusalem to Jericho because we believe if we can just get there, if we can build the house, if we can get the new car, if we can have the kids, if we can grow the ministry, if we can build the church, if we can just do those things, then there'll be peace, then there'll be contentment, then I'll be happy and everything will be better. Anybody amen me on that this morning? See, there's something that aches within us all of the time and it causes us as we're traveling to be going this path on this certain road. If we'll just get to that place, we'll be happy. You know, 1 Peter 2.11, it actually says, Beloved, I urge you, as strangers, as pilgrims, as sojourners in this world, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. See, that's us as Christians. He's saying, look, you're 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 just on a journey. You're just making your way through this life and there's a million fleshly desirable lusts that are appealing to you that are trying to get your focus off of God and off of Christ and off of your mission while you're here on earth because this mission is short. This life is brief. You're just a pilgrim. You're just a sojourner. Don't get caught up in allowing things to pull you away from the focus of all life, this foundation of love that Jesus is trying to teach us about because when it happens and what happens is what happens to all of us while we're traveling Life happens. We get beat up. Difficult things happen. Challenges happen. And it says, For this specific man in verse 30, that he fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing. I love the language of that. He fell among thieves. See, because I believe this is a much broader picture. I believe maybe he's saying that all of us are this traveler. Every last one of us, we're traveling. We're searching for something in life. We're trying to find our place in life. But every single one of us, guess what we've done? We are under the fall. We fell among the greatest thief of all time, Satan himself, who deceived us and lied to us, and we believed that lie. 
And when we fell among thieves, he stripped us of our clothing because Satan, at the end of the day, he is out to strip people of their true identity in Christ. The last thing he wants you to know is know who you are because of what Jesus has done for you. The last thing he wants you to know is that you are forgiven, you are cleansed, you, you, you are a conqueror through him that loved you, that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you like Donald quoted this morning, that you've not been given a spirit of fear but power, love, and a sound mind, that you have the mind of Christ, that greater is he who is in you than he who is in this world. The last thing he wants is for you to be clothed with your true identity in Christ. Scripture says Adam and Eve that they were clothed Right? With the glory of God. And, and, and all of a sudden, when they believed the lie, they lost that. They were stripped of their garments. And then it says that after they were stripped of his clothing, he wounded him and left him half dead. You know, one of the things that I find one of the greatest tactics of Satan in our generation is to have young people, even children, be abused, be hurt, be neglected, be abandoned, and that woundedness so get into their being that they really truly don't know who they are and all of a sudden they're left half dead. But again, we're all left half dead. The Bible says that we are all dead in sins and trespasses. God has made us alive who were once dead in sins and trespasses. We were half dead. It's the human condition. We were walking around in in the body. We were walking around in the flesh. But what Satan has done and what the fall has done is it has left us half dead. On the outside, we're breathing. But on the inside, we have a dead spirit that is completely disconnected from God. And on the inside, we're deeply empty. There's something that's broken. And he's left us in this condition half dead. But maybe, see, Jesus is beginning to tell us what he does and who he is and who he's come to save. And he's saying, look, maybe you are this traveler that's been beaten down by life. And maybe you're alive on the outside, but on the inside, you still feel pretty much dead. And that's, again, where we're all at. But look at what it says here in verse 31 and 32. Because in in verse 31 and 32, it begins to say that a priest passes by on one side. And he came down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side in verse 31. And this priest was a teacher of the Torah. This priest was like me and Donald modern day, right? And we pass by, and we're on our way to church, because church is important. And we see this man sitting on the side of the road, and we say, well, I can't really be dealt with that. I got church to go to. You know what I'm talking about? So we, he passes by, the priest passes by on the other side and says, I can't be, I can't be dealing with that now. But even for them, it was, it was much different because the priest, if he were to touch a corpse or blood, he would be unclean for seven days. And then this Levite, same condition. The Levite would be the one who would make sure that all the, the, the ceremonies in the church were taking place well and everything was, was clean and, and taken good care of. And, and then he passes by and he, and he sees the man laying there half dead and he just passes by on the other side as well. And I begin to think about this. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, this, this man that's sitting there half dead has got to be a Jewish person. That's what Jesus is talking about. It's not somebody that they would have neglected. It's one of their own. But when the priest and the Levite passed by, these would have been the people that the lawyer would have expected to do the best thing, right? Because because they knew the law. How is it that as church people, we're the ones that know the great commandment, but we have such a hard time fulfilling it? Somehow we begin to think that the great commandment 
is about distancing ourselves from those who are wounded and broken and in sin and pointing at them from the outside rather than engaging with them and going in to help them. I don't know how that happens. But Jesus understood that it happened, and he was trying to point that out to the lawyer. He's saying, look, you've been sent into the world with a command from God, with a charge from God to love people. And what has happened is you've got so caught up in laws and rules that you've distanced yourself from people and won't touch them because it might make you unclean. Now we do that same thing in different ways. And we begin to think about these things and I think Jesus is really pointing out something here though about the priest and the Levite because this would have represented to that lawyer the law. And I think what he's trying to point out is look, I've come to do away with this old covenant that you boys are, are, are dealing with. Because in the old covenant, it was based upon how good you were. The old covenant was, is if you keep all the law, you do it all right, if everything goes perfect and you do it and don't break any of these commandments, then you'll be blessed. And if you break one, even one, then all of these curses are going to come upon you. Man, I thank God that I'm not in the old covenant, that I'm in the new covenant where it's not based on my works or on my righteousness or on my goodness, but it's based on the righteousness of Christ that when I put my faith in Him, that He imputes His righteousness to me, that He gives me that righteousness, He clothes me in that righteousness, and He says, look, you are holy and you are blameless and you are clean in my sight. See, what He's saying is, and I know most people, a lot religious people hate this stuff because they want you to preach the law. Lay it down, brother, come on. Bring it this morning. Tell him sinners what's right and what's wrong. But here's the thing. We're all sinners. Find a man in here that has kept those commandments of loving the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. And the only person you're ever going to find is Jesus. Nobody's ever been able to keep it. And that's kind of the point. And he says, look, the law was good and holy and there's a purpose behind the law. Because the, the law, what it does is it just passes by you and points at you and says you're broken, you're miserable, you're ashamed, you're dirty, you're a sinner, you're unclean. That's what the law does. It doesn't have any power to help you. All it does is expose you. It just shows how much of a failure you are. And God says, but there's a purpose to it. It's holy. It shows you the holy standard of God. And what it ends up doing is it brings you to the end of yourself where you finally say, God, I can't do this. And he said, good. Because I know someone who did. And it just so happens that he wants to save you. It just so happens that he wants to come and transform your heart. See, when we're dealing with people, when we're dealing with people outside of the church, our job is honestly, as Christian people, not to get them to behave properly. I know that sounds weird. But our job is not to change their behavior. Our job is to introduce them to a living Savior and introduce them to a relationship with Jesus Christ. And when they have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ, He will transform who they are and He will change their behavior. But what our focus in the church so often is, well, let's change their behavior, but they don't even have a relationship with God yet. You're just making them a religious person. If you would help them to walk out a real relationship with Jesus and listen, I can, I can relate because, because when I struggled with certain sins in my life at a particular time that were more apparent, I still have things that I'm dealing with, but things that were more apparent, you know what? It took time. I come into a church and, 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 and sometimes, man, you get, you get, don't you love it when you go to church and they just really preach really hard on your sin? That's the best day ever in Sunday. Like, yes. And I felt good this morning. He really called out what, where I'm missing it. 
It's always fun like that. I went in a couple times where they was really calling out when I was missing it. And guess what? You know what? There was some good to it. But sometimes it didn't point me to Jesus. Sometimes it caused me to be self-focused, self-centered. Sometimes it caused me to say, well, I need to try harder. I need to do better. I need to work harder. I need to do more. I need to practice more. I need to work more. I need to pray more. I need to do all this stuff more. And you know what? All those things are good. But if it does not lead you into a genuine relationship with Jesus, it is all worthless. It is all religion. It is all dead. And it will not transform your life. And he's trying to point this out to this man. He's trying to tell him. And he says, look, it has no power to change your life. But then he says... A Samaritan passed by. And you know, you know as soon as he said this Samaritan passed by that all the Jewish people hanging out there were like, you better not. You better not make him the good guy in this story. If you do, I'm going to be offended. I'm going to leave this. I'm going to leave this place. I'm not going to stand here for this. I'm not going to be preached at this way. And the Samaritan comes by. And he begins to speak about this Samaritan. And it says, when the Samaritan passed by in verse 33... He came where he was and he saw him. And listen to what it says, this one word. It says, he saw him and he had compassion. Now, compassion is an interesting word. It's, a, it, it's, it's actually a, a Latin word with two words. And it means, passion means to suffer. That's why they call it the passion of Christ. Because he suffered on the cross. And come means with. And so it's to suffer with. It's a difficult word he's saying. He's saying this man had compassion. What this man did was this man saw him in his suffering and he was moved in his heart and he chose to suffer alongside and with this man. He saw this man and decided not to stay at a distance and point the finger, but he decided to go in and engage this man. You know who did this for us? Jesus Christ did this for us. He saw us in our suffering and in our pain, and he didn't say, look, I'm just going to judge them from the outside and point at them from the outside. No, he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take on flesh, and I'm going to go in and be among them, and I'm going to choose to suffer with them. And on the cross, I'm going to take on all their suffering, all their pain, all their rejection, all their abandonment. I'm going to have compassion on them. See, it's the compassion of God. There is no compassion, there is no love birthed in our heart until we first realize the love and compassion that Jesus had for us. And it says that when he comes to him, see, just like this Samaritan was rejected, right? This Samaritan was rejected by the Jewish people. Doesn't the scripture say about Jesus that he was rejected by his own? See, I believe that this Samaritan, Jesus is trying to point out that this is actually me. I'm talking about me here because the same way you reject Samaritans is the same way that ultimately you're going to reject me. But nevertheless, I came and this Samaritan came, look, and this Samaritan would have known that this Jew would reject him. This Jew would have never even eaten with him, but he says, I don't care. I'm going to help him. I'm going to come and meet him. And he had compassion. In verse 34, it says he bound up the man's wounds, pouring in oil and wine. Oil is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. And how the Holy Spirit, when Jesus begins to heal us, the Scripture says, even Jesus, Luke 4.18, He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He's anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. The second thing He says after that is to heal the brokenhearted, to bind up their wounds, to enter into where those wounds are and release the power of the Holy Spirit to bring freedom to their rejection, to their abandonment, to their shame, to their abuse, and to heal them. And then He says He poured in wine, which is symbolic of the blood of Jesus. It's the blood that cleanses us from all of our shame, from all of our pain, from all of our sin, and it begins to mend all that brokenness on the inside. And see, even in, even in those days, it had medicinal 
properties, but Jesus is trying to point out something much, much different here. And then he says that it, he, he actually exchanged positions with him. Look, it says that he came down off of his own animal. Jesus left his heavenly realm to be alongside of us. And guess what the scripture says? That he has seated us in heavenly places with him. The same way this good Samaritan came down off of his own animal and placed this man on his animal is the same way that he changed places with us and exchanged those places. And you know what? You could probably stop there and say, man, that's an awesome parable. He healed the man, put him on his animal. They're going to ride off into the sunset. But Jesus goes one step further. And then in verse 34 and 35, it says that he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, take care of him. And whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay you. Now see, Jesus doesn't just heal the man and put him on his animal, but he takes him to an inn. And I personally believe that this is where we come into play in this parable. If we're not necessarily the good Samaritan, even though we are called to be a good Samaritan, we are. Don't get it twisted. But I believe what we are is that we are the inn. The church is the place that when Jesus heals people and when Jesus takes the broken and the sinners of this world and begins to minister to them when they've fallen and they're broken on the road and the journey of life, He brings them to the end. He brings them to the church and He says to the church, take care of Him. Take care of Him while I go. And, and minister to Him. See, Jesus says, I will build My church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Right? The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And Jesus is beginning to point out that this is the church. This end, this end is the church. Now let me give you just four things in closing. Four things here while I close. About this observation here that's going to reveal the nature of the church. And the first one is that this end that Jesus is talking about, it's a real place. In those days, they, in those days scholars say that, that on this road from Jerusalem to Jericho, everybody knew about this road, Right? Everybody understood what this road was, and they said that on this road there would be robbers, there would be highwaymen, there would be all these people, and people would be on that road all the time, and they would get robbed, they would get abused, they would get raped. There was all kinds of different things going on. And so men decided, they decided, look, we're going to put up these, we're going to put up these, these ends at these specific locations where people are at high risk. We're going to put these in at these specific locations so that when people are broken down, when people are hurting, when people are abused, we can take them in in order to take care of them. Of course, they wanted to make a little money, but the point is, is Jesus is saying, you know where the church is to be? The church is not to be a place where Christians can remove themselves from the world. The church is to be a place from where Christians engage the world. We put the church in the darkest, bleakest, worst places where there's the most pain where there's the most suffering in order that we can bring the broken and the hurting in that we can minister to the broken and the hurting I'm telling you we, we've got it wrong to a large degree in our day about, about what this is really about and see I, I believe though that, that this was Jesus' call from the beginning the reason Jesus left he says look if I go the spirit's not going to come the church is never going to be born but if I go, I'll send another comforter to you and he will fill you and you will become my body in the earth. You will become the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I will put my compassion in you. And you'll start to see people differently. 
you'll start to look at people the way that I look at them. And see, the question in, in, in our life is, is, is how do we deal with pain? Do we have proximity to pain and suffering or do we try to avoid those things at all costs? You have to evaluate that in your own life. Like, do I want to deal with the difficult stuff? Do I want to be considered uh, a little bit weird because I hang out with some people that are really deeply struggling with some sinful behavior? Do I want to be that person? What's your proximity to pain? What's your proximity to suffering? The church has to have a close proximity because if we're not close to them, there's no way they're coming out. They're not going to make the leap. We have to go to them. You see, the second thing is in verse 35, when Jesus brings this man to the inn, he says to the innkeeper, that's you and I, he says, take care of him. There's no explanation of why he should take care of him. There's no explanation of why he's hurting or broken. Jesus doesn't say, the, the innkeeper does not say to Jesus, well, you know, what got him in this condition? Because maybe he brought it on himself. You know, the scripture says you got to reap what you sow. Let me tell you something. If that standard were placed upon all of us in here this morning, we would be in a terrible position. It's the mercy of God. It's the grace of God that's got you right where you're at. And as soon as you look at another person, no matter what they've been involved in, no matter what they're struggling with, and you look at them as less than you, as undeserving, and while you're deserving, you have fallen from the place that God has placed you. And he says, you're going to have to understand that you take care of them regardless. There is a lot of brokenness. There is a lot of pain in, in our world. And, and we have the answer. We're the only people that do. We're the only people that truly have the answer. But the question is, will we be the people that care? Will we be the people again that actually think about lost souls and it moves us? It moves us with compassion. That we actually care about people that are broken. And here's the, the third thing is he says, whatever more you spend, look, if you need to spend more to take care of it. He gave him two denarii. That was two days wages. And he says, whatever more you spend to take care of him, he said, I'll repay whenever I come back. He gave him two days wages. And here's what I believe. I, you know, sometimes when we get in ministry, we need more money. It's like right now. We, we want to go minister to people in Africa. And it costs money to minister to people in Africa. And Donald has said over and over again that the greatest miracles he's seen is in finances when he just chooses to obey God and follow God wherever God's calling him. Because you never have the resources up front. But I think that the thing about that is, is that when God calls you into something, He wants you into a faith partnership. He wants you to believe with Him as you go. If you had everything up front, it wouldn't be faith, would it? But if you choose to go and say, Lord, I'm believing you. I want to reach out with your compassion, with your love to a broken and a hurting world. And as I go, I trust that you're going to give me and equip me with all of the resources and all of the power and all of the spirit that I need in order to fulfill what you're calling me to do. He calls us into this partnership. And lastly, see, he says, I will repay when I come back. See, I still believe that Jesus is coming back. Amen. Most people don't want to talk about that anymore, but Jesus is coming back. And He is looking for a church and for a bride that is without spot and without blemish, that has washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. And you know, there's even one parable, and it's such a convicting parable that Jesus talked about in Matthew 24. But He said, when I return, He says, who is that wise and faithful servant? Who's the wise and faithful servant that when I return, I find them giving food to their household in due season. What he's saying is, are you actually being what I've called you to be? 
Are you actually spiritually nurturing the broken and the hurting and the church and the people and your family, everybody around you? Are you ministering to them? Are you giving them spiritual food that they need? Is this the condition that I find you in? Because he says, if I return and that servant of mine is eating and drinking with the drunken, in other words, he's just become intoxicated with the world. And he's totally not focused on the call of God. He says, and he begins to smite his fellow servants. He begins to have animosity, discord, gossip, anger, frustration between people. And love is no longer at the center of his heart. He says some harsh stuff. He says, I will cast them into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. What Jesus is saying is ultimately what Mr. Rogers said at the beginning. He said, love is at the center of all things. It's at the center of all learning. It's at the center of all relationships. And the greatest thing that we can do is to help people know that they are loved they are capable of loving. Jesus says, which one showed mercy? He, he said, which one proved to be a neighbor? The guy said, the one who showed mercy, the one who loved that man, had compassion and entered into pain with him. Jesus said, go and do likewise. Jesus is saying, look, you can't do this without me. You have to come to a place over and over again. You know what? We're, there's a lot of things we don't need, but there's one thing we need every day of our lives, and that's a Savior. Amen. Why don't you just bow your heads with me just for a moment? I just want you to consider just for a moment where you're at in your, in your walk with the Lord. Just as simple as that. Whether you're wanting to begin a relationship or you're just realizing, Lord, I, wanna, I believe you're coming back, Jesus, and I want to be committed to what you're doing. And here's what I believe about this church. Because I don't want this, I don't want this message to come on, on people as a heavyweight. Because what I truly believe about this people and, and people that I know, I have friends that I know they love people. They sacrifice for people. There are people in this church that you love people. You sacrifice for people. You give your life so that ultimately other people who are far from God will come to know Jesus. And I just ask this morning that, Lord, you would pour out more of your spirit to enable us to do that. And right now where you're at, would you just ask him, say, Lord, would you do something afresh in my heart? Would you pour your compassion in my heart for people that are broken and hurting and are lost and don't know you, Jesus? And move our heart as a church. Let us be the innkeepers. Let us be the ones that take the commandment to care for those people that care about the lost, that care about the broken and the hurting, and that are moved with compassion, with your compassion, God, in order to minister to them. And Lord, even for the ones that are broken this morning and hurting, I pray that right now you would pour in oil and wine, that your blood, Jesus, would be applied to their life, that the peace of the Holy Spirit, the comfort of the Holy Spirit would just settle upon them, and bring them peace. Now, if you're here right now with your head bowed and, and you say, I, I, right now is the time I want to just go ahead and surrender to Jesus. I want to give my life to Him. I want to make this decision right now to follow Jesus. Just with every head bowed, would you raise your hand and let me know that you say, I want to follow Jesus. I see you. Got a few hands. Anybody else? Anybody else? Now, for the rest of us, I'm not even going to ask you to raise your hand because I know that if Jesus lives in your heart, you want more of Him. It's not a question. So here's what we're going to do. I just want us to, to stand together. I want us to take these next few moments together to worship God. And this altar is going to be open for anybody to come forward and pray. And if you need prayer for anything specific, listen, we, we, want, to, we want to pray for you just for that those of you that, that say, you know what, I really just want to make a commitment to God. 
a greater commitment. I want Him to pour my compassion in it. We believe in steps of faith. We believe in coming forward just, just as an act of faith to respond. And so if you would, everybody that will, if you would, just, just respond to the Lord this morning.